Okay, hey everybody, how you doing? And welcome to episode number 150 of the John Riley Project. Thanks for joining us. This is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're live streaming on Facebook. We're live streaming on YouTube. So we invite your questions, your comments. Um, we'll be you know checking out you know, the thoughts and opinions and, and questions from our listeners and viewers, and trying to make this podcast interactive. Um, yeah, so <laughs> the, everything's going crazy right now with the postal crisis, the post office and President Trump and the elections and the elections are at risk. And there's so much discussion about it. We're going to we're going to really break this down. We're going to get into the whole post office crisis situation. Um, and then we're going to take a look at some of the. You know, things going on with the gig economy. And one of our loyal uh, listeners and viewers, also a frequent guest, Pete Neal, um, was commenting about the gig economy. We're having some conversation about it on Facebook. So I thought I would share a little bit about not just the gig economy and why I'm such a big supporter of it and why I think it has huge benefits for you in the audience. But it's also I just want to get into the mindset of what the gig economy is all about and how that mindset can be so powerful, not just as a gig economy worker, but also as an employee um, of a company. That mindset can be just tremendously empowering. And, and we're going to kind of get into that as well. Um, so... Yeah. Also, before we get started, just a couple more housekeeping uh, pieces of information. Yeah, we're live streaming on YouTube. We're live streaming on Facebook. We will have a recorded version of this up on YouTube when we're finished. Um, I think the recorded version also stays on Facebook. And then, of course, we're on all of the audio only podcast platforms like um, like, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. I mean, we're probably on at least a dozen other platforms, so we invite you to join us there. And if you could, if you really like what we're doing, give us a thumbs up, give us a, a like, a, a rating, a review. That's just so helpful as we get into this. So um, what I, I tell you what, I just finished watching the Padre game and I'm pulling my hair out. They lost the game at the end. The bullpen blew it again. Now they eventually they just got swept by the Arizona Diamondbacks. And man, it is tough to be a Padre fan. And, you know, going into this season, we sort of knew things and we didn't know things. We we knew that the offense should be improved, but there were a lot of question marks. We were starting an unknown guy, Trent Grisham in center field. We didn't know what we were going to get from Will Myers because he could be hot or cold. Um, new guy, Tommy Pham coming in, but we knew he had an arm injury, so you weren't sure. Uh, Machado wasn't all that great last year. Hopefully he's better. Um, second base was God knows what was going to happen there. We knew we had trouble at catching with hitting. A lot of question marks about the offense. The starting pitching, we were optimistic, you know, with uh, Richards and Paddock and Lamette and Davies. And then we knew we had Gore and Patino coming up and Lucchese was probably a good placeholder. But the one thing we knew going into this season is that our bullpen was going to be really, really good. And in fact, it's turned out to be the exact opposite. Um, and it's just brutal being a, a fan of the Padres. I joke about it, the San Diego sports curse. And let me tell you, my friends, it's real. It's legit. There's like voodoo going around here. The Chargers um, would always choke. The Padres, uh, it just goes on and on. And then even the Aztecs, when they had a great, they're having a great run in basketball this year. And then, of course, the the NCAA tournament gets canceled and we can go on and on and on. And I keep telling myself I'm going to do a podcast about the San Diego sports curse. And geez, we should probably have David Leland join me on that because there are literally, you know, probably at least 50 bullet points of things that have gone wrong. And today was another one of them. So just so tough. Um, but I've been having a really good weekend and, um, one of the things that you know I, I did this weekend, which I feel really good about, is you ever go and like kind of purge things? You just kind of cleanse. And we had a bunch of stuff in our garage, and I made a big Goodwill trip. And 
that feels good. It's like that addition by subtraction. And you know you're putting your things to good use and giving other people an opportunity to not only use it, but to monetize what you're donating. And that felt really good. And it was a good thing to check off on my list. And I'm kind of trying to work through cleansing other parts of our garage uh, to get some of my stuff organized. So I got that done today. And that was really good. And oh, look who's Pete Neal chiming in here on the live stream. And um, and he's all <laughs> he's happy. I'm talking. I'm going to talk about the gig economy because that was one of his recommendations. And of course, he does not like it when um, when I talk about Padre baseball. But uh, Pete, I love you. One of these days, maybe you'll you'll appreciate it. So someday maybe you'll be a sports fan outside the world of race cars, which I love in you. Um, also, just a few other things before we dive into the postal service and the gig economy. I just like to share some things that I've been up to just to give you an insight of what I'm doing and what what's going on in my world. Um, I talked about last week how I went to Pahrump, Nevada, and it was sort of like a so when Superman goes to his fortress of solitude, you know, and I I kind of got away from everything and had no distractions, had nothing planned. I was by myself and I did a lot of thinking, a lot of journaling. I really was able to kind of get closure on a lot of things. I was able to process a lot of issues mentally. And and then I did some forward planning, you know, as part of that process. And I came out of it feeling really good. And, you know, it's one thing when you go through a planning process and you feel good coming out of it. And you're like, okay, that's good. But does it have legs, right? Is this sustainable? And I know I'm only a week out of my trip, but... It has been good. I'm noticing this week that I have clarity of mind. I have tremendous focus. My productivity has greatly enhanced. Um, And I think a lot of that is just by clearing some of the mental clutter in my mind. And it has just been extraordinarily helpful. So I don't know what uh, some of the tips and tricks you do. Maybe you like to meditate. Maybe you like to go away on your own. Maybe you find other ways to mentally process things, but I'm just getting huge benefits out of that trip from last week and really hoping that I can sustain this going forward. Um, There's been less drift. You know how you can be part of the day, you can be really engaged, really focused. Other parts of the day, you can kind of just sort of drift and you're reacting to things rather than proacting. I've had way less drift, um, which has been really, really helpful. And a lot of it is awareness. Just having that constant awareness has allowed me to be a lot more focused and clear of mind. And boy, it's just been powerful. So again, more of that was more of addition by subtraction. You know, I'm kind of getting closure on a lot of issues and, you know, that have been cycling through my mind over and over and again. And I kind of resolved a lot of that. I've subtracted a lot of that. And now I'm um, that in and of itself is addition by subtraction. So that's been great. Um, also, this weekend, I um, uh, had an opportunity to join one of our previous guests, Chris Olps. Now, Chris Olps lives here in our hometown of Poway, and he is a candidate for city council. And I'll give Chris credit. He um, set up a Zoom um, conference for anybody to join him and take questions. And you know, we had a small group there, but Chris was very open, very transparent, answered questions. And I just love seeing that. And, and granted, Chris isn't in the district in Poway where I live because we've been partitioned into districts. But um, it was really great that uh, Chris is doing that, really getting out into the community. And we wish Chris well in this upcoming election. He is going to be in a competitive race against uh, the incumbent, Kalen Frank. Uh, Kalen, of course, joined us on the podcast in 2018. Um, We've extended an invitation to her to join us here in 2020 and hope she can join us. And then the third candidate in that race is Frank Fournier. And Frank and I have been playing kind of back and forth. And now we're tentatively set to do a podcast episode and share it in a live stream with you this Wednesday. So let's hopefully we don't have any, um, you know, scheduling hiccups as we get through that. But that's what we're tentatively slated for. So Chris is in a good race, but I'm, I'm really happy he did that. He, he kind of had transparency and opened it up. 
And as part of that, I, there's there's some conversation going on right now um, amongst, um, you know, some people here in Poway about trying to set up um, some more um, forums um, online in Zoom so we can have the alternative to the in-person candidate forums, the candidate debates. Um, and so there's a movement afoot. I know the League of Women Voters has gotten involved. Invitations are going to shortly be going out. Um, so this is something that... Um, um, I'm kind of getting involved in. I don't want to get the cat too far out of the bag, but we're hopeful that um, as we get into the heat of the campaign season, we're going to have an open forum online where the candidates will be able to debate and be able to take questions from the audience. So um, we'll see how that unfolds. Um, OK, and uh, Mike Devine joining us on the live stream. And Mike Devine is at the top of Mount Woodson. Now, he is a hiker. Uh, Mike Devine, um, of course, a pretty active, outspoken, um, uh, you know, political activist here in Poway. And uh, he's a big time hiker and very active. And I give him huge credit for that. But man, at the top of Mount Woodson and what's the temperature right now? It's got to be at least over 90. So hope you got some water with you, Mike. Um, OK, so let's get into the U.S. Postal Service and, you know, Right now, there's all kinds of shrieking and paranoia and accusations and people are flinging mud at each other because, of course, the Postal Service has such a huge impact on the vote because so many people vote by mail. I mean, here in our community, I think it's at least two thirds, if not three fourths of voters vote by mail and they get absentee ballots in the mail and they fill those out. And if the mail is disrupted, then suddenly the election could be spun into chaos and people are really concerned about that. And of course, now where there's mail in voting, which my understanding is different than absentee, um, which according to the critics of mail-in voting, invites a lot of fraud. But then again, a lot of the fraud, there's been some pointed out, there's been some evidence of it, but in the whole scope of things, it's been very, very, very minor. Um, so you have a lot of political motivations going on on both the left and the right as it pertains to this topic. But the big news coming up you know, in the last day or so has been um, that the Postal Service has been removing some of their mailboxes. They've been removing some of their postal sortation machines and people are like hair on fire thinking that the post office is being shut down is, you know, basically having its leg broken, that it's not going to be able to function. And this all fits right into, you know, kind of what President Trump is really good at is creating chaos, <laughs> creating all kinds of noise and distractions. Um, and it it's going to create a, already it's doing this. It's creating fear, uncertainty, doubt. Um, it's going to put the election one way or the other, no matter who wins or loses, this is going to be a topic that's going to be blamed for why one person won or lost. Um, it's going to be um, a target and it's going to probably lead to lawsuits and, and recounting. And I think the way this is setting up is what happened in 2000 in Florida with the hanging chads. Uh, that may end up being small compared to what may happen in this election because there's so much political motivation to either protect the Postal Service or to disrupt it. And um, and who knows, this might be built-in cover for President Trump, knowing that he's at a disadvantage, knowing that he is, at least according to the polls today, likely to lose. Maybe this is a built-in excuse. I don't know. Um, but it's definitely a concerning issue. Um, and there's all kinds of anger being thrown at the postmaster general. And, you know, he apparently is a big Trump donor and that creates a lot of you know, cronyism and that kind of accusation, which is concerning. And now they're talking about withholding funding and which is an interesting topic in itself is, well, does does the do taxpayers fund the post office or are they supposed to be self-sufficient? You know, why are they being withheld funding? Don't they get their own funding from selling postage, selling stamps, et cetera? Well, we're going to we're going to break down some of that as well. Um, of course, our progressive friends, um, you know, they're the ones that see the United States Postal Service not just as a a service provider, but really they see it as part of the common good, the public good, and that it's a fundamental part of a pillar of democracy. Um, and to me, it's really strange because 
it's like the progressives are clinging to the romantic notion of the post office, to the Norman Rockwell painting of a postal uh, worker and how it is such a big part of Americana. Well, normally progressives are for progress. Normally, the people that are clinging to the past are the conservatives. Um, and it's interesting how it's flipped on this, how it, it seems that the progressives are the ones that are really trying to hang on to the past. Um, but in the end, I, I, I know I, the way that I see this, and we're going to get into some facts on this in just a moment. But this one of my concerns is, is how when the when the federal government is managing various agencies, they don't manage them from a a objective kind of fiscally disciplined manner um, like you would traditionally a business. And people say, yeah, government is not a business. And, and that's true to a degree. Um, but there are certain aspects of business that can be applied to government, you know, in terms of being a break even enterprise, in terms of shedding inefficiencies more aggressively um, in terms of trying to minimize losses. But um, what we're seeing now is that the post office isn't really managed on that basis. Um, it's really more managed based on political outcomes, based on taking care of postal workers, based on making sure the postal service is available for every single mailbox, uh, making sure that the postal service is um, – is essentially a guaranteed form of service. And those political aims, because, you know, people are so emotionally attached to the post office, these politicians manipulate that process depending on if you're on the left uh, side of the aisle or the right side of the aisle and are, are kind of playing it politically rather than dealing with it objectively based on the sound data of the, of the matter. Um, but, I don't know. I, I'm a believer that the United States Postal Service should be privatized because it could be. It's a clean agency that has its own revenue stream, its own expense. And frankly, if it were privatized, they could control their own destiny. They wouldn't be dependent on politicians in Washington, D.C. that that won't allow them to raise rates to the rate that they want so they can break even. They wouldn't be dependent on Republican or Democratic politicians that are manipulating their pension plan or pre-funding the health care plan of their employees. If they were privatized, they would be able to control their own destiny and they would be able to shed the political motivations and the manipulation of the politicians. That's what I'd like to see. Um, are we? Is that going to happen? It's not. I mean, there's just no way. Uh, the Postal Service is going to remain part of the government um, no matter what. Now, um, I do have some history with the Postal Service. I, I own a marketing agency, and I do provide a lot of different services for my clients. And part of it involves direct mail. You know, I, I do a lot of work with databases, with mailing lists and um, managing a lot of data. And those data um, databases are used to fuel a lot of catalog mailers uh, for companies that are selling um, home goods and window coverings and a, and a lot of product for, for homes. Um, and at the same time, um, I'm also as part of what I do for my clients is that I actually will do direct mail campaigns for my clients. It's just one aspect of the services that I offer. So I've gotten to know the people of the post office and the people, not just at the front retail counter, but also the workers at the Carmel Mountain facility, which is the main post office here in San Diego County, the sectional control facility, and gotten to know the people in the bulk mail entry unit, BMEU. That's where we bring in the trays of bulk mail. And um, so I, know, I, I have some history. My, my company has spent nearly a million dollars with the post office, um, you know, over the course of time. And um, I, I had always heard, and this, this is an interesting topic because I remember I was at a, um, it was a direct marketing training class that was sponsored by the Postal Service and the presenter at this. And it was it was it was um, it was at a conference, you know, one of the breakout rooms. And um, the presenter that was there insisted that the post office was a break even enterprise and talked about how the post office will, you know, sometimes increase postage rates. Then they start running a surplus for a time. Then 
eventually expenses begin to rise to the point that they become break even. And then for a short while, they go into a deficit um, where their expenses continue to rise. And then at a certain point in the deficit, they raise postage rates again, and then they go back to break even and back to a surplus. And then on it goes. That cycle overall the Postal Service is a break-even enterprise. That's the way it's always been explained to me. Um, but it was interesting is that I was pointed out that, you know, at least historically, that wasn't true. Um, that from the 1850s until the 1960s, Congress routinely covered whatever deficits the post office incurred, no matter how large and with little controversy, partisanship or debate. Um, And I'm reading from an article from the Washington Post. Um, Why did they do this? Well, because the Postal Service was a public service. Again, this is how our progressive friends on the left see the post office, um, whose rationale was civic rather than commercial. Um, As a New York journalist put it in 1854, okay, this goes back to the romantic era of the Postal Service, the Postal Service's benefit to mankind far outweighed the pecuniary consideration of any financial shortfall in 1958, a federal law and made this even clearer. The Postal Service was clearly not a business enterprise conducted for profit. Well, I don't think anyone expects the Postal Service to be a profit-making enterprise. Um, I just think most people think that it should just be break-even. You know, overall, it should be a wash. The people that use the Postal Service should be the ones that fund it and ultimately pay for it. Um, But there's a lot more going on. And um, there's, you know, there's a number of things that are swirling at once because you've got um, President Trump and, and the political motivations around the election that's swirling. You've got this notion of um, privatization, who um, many progressives believe that that is the end game and goal of the Republicans is to sabotage the Postal Service and uh, make them a, a private organization. Um, then you've got, you know, of course, the the actual downturn in the economy, the digital economy of the 21st century coming forward, and the post office, their business model has been dramatically disrupted. And there's a lot, and we're going to, I'm going to go into some of these facts. How do you reconcile all this? And so I'm going to try to explain at least some of these facts. And this came from a Wall Street Journal article, and it said that the post office's problems isn't just Trump. And In the article, it says, you know, the post office is meant to be self-sufficient. And granted, historically, it wasn't. But I think in in the recent decades, or at least during my lifetime, most people think of it as a self-sufficient enterprise. Um, But since 2007, the Postal Service has lost $78 billion. And what does that mean? Well, that means that taxpayers are having to subsidize the post office. But the Postal Service, if you think about this, the Postal Service, yeah, it, it, it provides that letter for grandma to put a first class stamp and a birthday card or a letter to a long lost friend, which is that romantic notion of the Postal Service. But a tremendous volume of mail is for marketing purposes. It's the kind of work that I do. And so when the, when the government is, is subsidizing the Postal Service, what then the government is ultimately doing is subsidizing corporations. It's a form of corporate welfare, in my opinion. And I, that's why I think the enterprise needs to be a break-even um, you know, entity. Um, but what's interesting is, is that when you talk to the Postal um, Workers, or you even go on the website for the U.S. Postal Service, they've got a, um, you know, if you look up USPS facts and they have their top facts, I think it was the top 13 facts about the U.S. Postal Service. And the number one fact on their list, and I'll read it to you, it says zero tax dollars used. The Postal Service receives no tax dollars for operating expenses and relies on the sale of postage, products, and services to fund its operations. Well, Someone's lying here because historically the post office, remember going back into the early part of the 20th century, was subsidized all the time, which I shared. And already in the last, since 2007, they've run a deficit of $78 billion. Where does that money come from? I mean, obviously it's coming from taxpayer dollars. The, the, gov- the Congress is having to subsidize them. Is it in the form of a loan or is it an outright subsidy? I mean, we can break that down. But in the end, when they say that no tax dollars are being used to fund the post office. That's just not 
true. Um, it's interesting in the article in the Wall Street Journal, they said that the post office is a blockbuster service in a Netflix world. And I think that's very true. But of course, our Democratic friends um, are crying sabotage. And, you know, they're saying that, um, you know, this is an this is an effort by the Republicans to destroy the post office by not providing additional subsidies, especially during this covid crisis. Well, near the post office lost two point two billion dollars with a B last quarter, just in three months. The United States Postal Service lost two point two billion dollars. Now, that's not because the Republicans are sabotaging it. It's because mail volume is down. And then the the digital economy and, you know, the COVID crisis, which when businesses are being forcibly shuttered by government, then, of course, they're not going to be doing as much mailing or delivery of products, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, the the um, the inbound revenue, the amount of volume is way down. Um and here, overall mail volume peaked in 2006 at 213 billion pieces. And as of last year, it was down by a third, by 33%. And more than half of it is marketing mail, which some of you may refer to as junk mail. Um, but a half of it is marketing mail. So again, taxpayers are subsidizing the post office, which ultimately are subsidizing corporations to do marketing. And as a guy who owns a marketing agency, I love that. But really, what's the right policy? What's the right scope for the government? And that, of course, should be to not take and not to be provided with any welfare of the sort, any corporate welfare or any subsidies. So um, and, you know, we I can go on. There's a lot of bullet points from this article in The Wall Street Journal that I thought were just fascinating Um, here, like. The United States Postal Service has a monopoly on letter service, which is true. You know, first class mail and bulk mail or third class mail or marketing mail, however you want to call it. The Postal Service has a monopoly on it. And the only way any other company can send a letter like UPS or DHL or FedEx, the only way they can do letter mail is if it's deemed urgent. And that was the way they were able to get around that monopoly. So the, uh, they have a monopoly on that. They also have a monopoly on, the, on your mailbox. No one else is allowed to touch your mailbox. Not even your neighbor down the street that's throwing a block party in the cul-de-sac and wants to put a flyer in your mailbox. Even that's illegal. So the Postal Service actually has a monopoly on that. Um, and they also have a universal service obligation, um, promise to carry a letter anywhere for a flat price of a 55 cent stamp. And again, this is the romantic notion of the postal service that some people really love, that everyone can participate in this. But there's some crazy examples. I mean, the United States Postal Service says its longest route is in Sydney, Montana, where a carrier or mailman will travel 191 miles in a day just to go to 272 mailboxes. And in Supai, Arizona, mules take the mail down an eight mile path to the base of the Grand Canyon. So they go through all this effort and expense to service people that choose to put themselves in um, in very remote, very rural, frankly, way the hell out there places. Um, Does that make sense? Um, It depends on how you view the Postal Service. Um, I'm of the opinion that if 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 people live far away, well, then it should cost more money to deliver to them Um, and not just 55 cents. The cost should be higher. And in fact, with marketing mail, that's how it works. The, the mail that is most close to where you drop the mail is cheaper. And if I like, for example, if I take 5000 postcards to the Carmel Mountain facility and drop it at the bulk mail entry unit, if they if the recipients are in Poway or Rancho Bernardo or Rancho Penasquitos, I get a low rate. But if some of those recipients are in Maine or in Florida or Alaska or Hawaii, the rate is much, much higher. Um, to me, that makes sense. To do, If you're going to make the Postal Service work harder, it should cost more. Um, but there is this this um, ideal of wanting to make it available to everyone at a ridiculously low price. And it is kind of amazing to think that you could put a letter in the mail and for 55 cents, it'll travel cross country um, in the first place. Um, so, 
But um, you know that if if the post office, they have opportunities to consolidate operations, but they won't do it. They won't close down local post offices because the congressman would flip out. The congressman doesn't want to make the voters angry. Um, so, again, the Postal Service is being managed for political outcomes rather than for fiscally prudent outcomes. So if there is a post office that is um, in a far and distant area that has very little traffic, they won't consolidate it with another. They'll keep it alive. Um, there's also motivations to keep the Postal Service um, robust just to satisfy the workers, which happen to be union, which happen to vote Democratic. You know, so, again, more politi- political motivations. Um, and even there have been cases where they, we, they've talked about um, not delivering mail on Saturday. And in some cases, they've discussed not delivering mail on Wednesday. If they had done that, it saved them $2 billion a year. But they won't do it. They won't do it because they have political motivations for what they want the Postal Service to do. Um, and then, yeah, postal rates are capped at the rate of inflation, require Congress to, to do those um, um, requires Congress to uh, to pass postal rate increases, which is crazy. I mean, really, they should have control over their own destiny um, and, and on and on it goes. But um, it's interesting. The post office from a, a fiscal perspective is in trouble, regardless of what you're going to say about, you know, the Republicans or the Democrats, even separate from the whole idea of the prefunding of the pension and health care. Even without that, they're still not break even. So the Postal Service has major financial challenges, um, and at the same time, mail volume is way, way down, and the the economy is shifting. The economy is evolving. Um, Are they prepared to evolve with it? Now, some people will say, well, the post office, it's in the Constitution. It's mandated in the Constitution, but it's not mandated. In the Constitution, it says that Congress shall have the power to, um, to create a postal service, But it doesn't say it has to have it. It doesn't say it's a mandatory service. It also, in that same clause, says that Congress has the power to create postal roads. But do we have postal roads anymore? No, we don't, uh, because we have other types of roads. But the the post office, I think we have to understand, just because it's mentioned in the Constitution doesn't mean it's mandated to be a federal government um, uh, service. But... I'm concerned because it's once as long as it's a government service, it becomes manipulated. It becomes a tool of the politicians. And in so doing, they will use it in this case to disrupt elections. They will use it in other cases to stroke and take care of um, special interests and unions and and certain voter constituencies um, rather than just making it a service that is break even, has no additional burden on taxpayers, does not provide forms of corporate welfare for corporations. It needs to be managed properly. Now, what's going to happen for this election? I mean, you know, is the post office being hamstrung? I know they've, they've taken away some mailboxes and postal sorting equipment up in the, I think in the Northeast, maybe in the Portland area, um, or maybe it's Eugene, Oregon. But you know, maybe that's actually good news. Maybe that's actually postal consolidation and creating efficiencies so they're not a negative um, uh, drain on taxpayer dollars. So we'll see. Um, but I know in the end, I, I'm, if it all plays out the way I expect, I expect that Trump will lose. I also expect that this will be one of the excuses, that it'll be that the post office can't be relied on, that there were fake ballots and, and, and there, were, um, there was manipulation and the ballots were slow to be delivered. And I think that's going to be used as a built-in excuse. And God forbid, when we get through this election, I'm worried there's going to be some form of violence that's going to come from either the left or the right depending on the outcome of this election. So this is crazy times we're in, friends. Um, but it, you take a look at the people and what they're saying about the Postal Service and just try to look at it objectively. Understand that there's manipulation, politiza- politicization, and at the same time, the Postal Service already has serious problems that they need to address. Um, and I don't expect Trump to fix those things. I think Trump benefits as long as it's in a chaos mode, as long as it becomes a distraction, a shiny object, a reason to blame someone else, a scapegoat. And I think that's how it's going to play out. 
Okay, moving along in the in the live stream. And by the way, we got we got a number of people that are already watching, um, and thank you for that. And if you're if you're watching um, online on Facebook or on YouTube, please give it a thumbs up. That's always helpful. And of course, if you can share the podcast or or share with a friend or recommend it, uh, that's always greatly appreciated as we work to build the audience. Okay, I want to now get into the gig economy and. You know, our, our good friend of the podcast, Pete Neald, who um, has been a guest on the podcast. Gosh, Pete, how many times? Probably five, maybe six times you've been a guest and you've always been a great guest. And we've talked about Corvettes. We've talked about ancestry. We've talked about local um, news and political issues here in our hometown of Poway. Um, but um, at the same time, um, you were talking uh, to me earlier today. And talking about the gig economy. And you said it was funny how you associated the word gig with me because I talk about the gig economy a lot. And, and thanks for that. Um, and I told you, yeah, let's let's talk about the gig economy here. And f- by the way, as an aside, the word gig is just kind of a funny word, isn't it? Uh, um, you know, I got a gig tonight. You know, musicians say that, you know, when they've got an opportunity to perform and hopefully put a couple of bucks in their pocket. Um, but the whole notion of, you know, the gig economy is where people have these, they're actually freelancers. They have an opportunity to work on a job, on a project, you know, that that's just going to exist for a short period of time or maybe a medium length period of time. Um, and in my opinion, the gig economy is fantastic and it creates a tremendous amount of opportunity. But the classic company in this whole discussion is usually Uber. And of course, right now in California, they passed a, a bill that made a gig workers in um, the work for Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and a few other categories. They said you have to make them employees. And of course, excuse me, those companies greatly objected. They are fighting back. Um, I think there might be a proposition on this ballot in November. I can't recall, but I know that they're spending big money fighting back trying to overturn that um, to their best of their ability. But really, in in California, that's so heavily Democratic, so progressive, that's an uphill battle. Well, the CEO of Uber said that they're probably going to have to shut down temporarily in California if it's forced to classify their workers as employees. And I think that's kind of a threat. I think they're playing the game, trying to apply leverage, trying to get the people freaking out about this uh, so they can apply pressure on their po- uh, the politicians. So we'll see how that plays out. But I'm a huge supporter of the, of the gig economy for a lot of reasons. And I think, you know, if you kind of look at the nuts and bolts of it, I, I, I think it's awesome. But the mindset, the mindset of the gig economy is very, very powerful because it puts a worker in the mode of being an entrepreneur to being in business for themselves and having a creative um, opportunity to do very special things. So I think, in my opinion, the gig economy greatly empowers workers. They are free. They are free to do what they want to do, to be passionate about the work that they do. They can, they can actually make their career and their, um, their values aligned um, in a very powerful way. So I've always thought that the gig economy frees up the worker so that they can pursue their own happiness and put together a business model that works for them. Um, It positions um, workers to make a lot more money uh, because in most cases with gig workers is that if a, an employee is making X dollars of uh, dollars an hour and that employee may also be getting some form of benefits, healthcare, dental, maybe a 401k, maybe vacation time. The gig worker can come in and oftentimes command two or three times the hourly rate of a regular worker. But then they don't have vacation time. They don't have healthcare insurance. They got to figure out a way to cover that themselves. But it it positions the the gig worker to actually, in the end, make a lot more money per hour to really get far greater value for their work. And um, it, it this can be tremendously empowering. And then if you combine it with the fact that they're no longer stuck in an eight to five, they're no longer having to show up at 8 a.m., go home at 5 p.m., be stuck in the rat race, stuck in the commute. Now, in the gig economy, they can have better work-life balance. 
You know, if they have children at home, they have to be, um, uh, you know, they have to do a drop off and pick up at school. They can they can schedule and manipulate their work around their personal schedule to have better work life balance. And that is huge. Very, very powerful, especially now. And, um, you know, as we're you know dealing with covid and we're seeing a lot of people really enjoying working from home because of that benefit of work life balance. Now, imagine if they were a gig worker where they can double or triple their hourly rate, um, that could be tremendously engaging for them. Um, I think also that um, it, 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 it's the mindset of encouraging entrepreneurism because they're going to be in a position where they are no longer thinking about their job as like, oh, this is my job and I've got to manufacture these widgets and I'm punching in and punching out. And the, the job, you know, for some people is a burden. It's a drag. It's a chore. The job is what I have to do to pay the bills. Well, in the gig economy, the, the, now when you're thinking like an entrepreneur, now it's no longer just a job. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to do special things. It's an opportunity to innovate. It's an opportunity to provide um, unique services to satisfy the needs of, of various customer segments. It's very, very powerful that it em- empowers the worker to be um, an entrepreneur. And no longer are they working for the man. No longer are they under the thumb of some a-hole boss that's squeezing them. Now they're their own boss. Now they can establish their own conditions. They can decide what work they're going to take and what work they're going to say no to. They can establish their own hours, their own policies, their own principles. It, it greatly frees up the worker and empowers them. And then, of course, it's good for the employer. It's good for the company because now they have greater flexibility. It's easy for them, uh, much easier for them to dismiss um, a gig worker because um, they're really no longer an employee of the company. So all the HR stuff doesn't apply. And then, of course, from the company's perspective, they aren't worried about um, um, issues related to health care and all the benefits. It's just cleaner and easier from the business's perspective that they can bring on talent as they need it. And then when they no longer need that talent, they can let them go free so they can find other opportunities in the gig economy. So I I just think it's fantastic. And um, Pete, you know, you talked about how there's a constant need to evolve and, and, and to adjust. And yeah, of course, that's very, very necessary because the economy is always changing and the needs of customers are always changing. So of course, um, the gig workers are going to need to adjust to the to the economy as it unfolds, but really so do employees. Employees have to adjust to the changing landscape of their job, the changes that their business is going through, the company they work for, and in the economy at large. But some some employees won't budge. They won't. They 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 insist on clinging to the past, which is part of the reason I have trouble with our our friends that work at the postal service. Some of them are clinging to a 19th or 20th century business model that is less, um, uh, that hasn't fully evolved into the 21st century. Um, Workers have to evolve and adjust, and so do gig workers. But the mentality is just huge because it changes the way you think about your work. It's no longer a job. It's an interesting opportunity for you to showcase your skills and continuously find opportunities to earn more money. Um, a friend of mine was sharing with me a story and he said that he found that viewing his employer as a customer, purchasing his, purchasing his services has enabled him to think of new services and skills and duties that he can offer to his customer or his employer in exchange for more money. Um, it helped him focus on ensuring that he was offering the best value for um, the money that was being paid. So that mindset, that gig economy mindset, even for a worker is very empowering because if you think of your boss, your employer as your customer, and they really are your customer, um, it puts you in an interesting situation where you can look for new and interesting ideas on how to benefit your customer, help solve problems for your customer, which will in turn create opportunities and benefits for you. Um, You know, it's funny as some of our friends on the left, some of our socialist friends on the left sometimes say that employers 
are imp- oppressing them. Um, the employer is oppressing them, but really your employer is, is your customer. So, you know, if the employer is oppressing you that if that's true, then I'm oppressing Walmart every time I walk in their store. So, um, the gig economy to me, um, big fan of it. I work in the gig economy as part of my business. I do a lot of project related work for clients. I also do hourly work for clients. Um, I have um, had, you know, good paying hourly gigs and I've had better paying hourly gigs. Um, I've been able to parlay one into another to much better opportunity in some of the consulting work that I've done. Um, And at the same time, I do a lot of project work and um, and I, I, I participate in the gig economy in two different directions. In some cases, I am the gig worker that is brought on to do a particular project. But in other cases, I bring on gig workers to help me um, to get things done on the work that I'm doing. And we have a really great symbiotic relationship, a lot more flexibility, greater work-life balance. And to me, it's just huge. And so when we're going through this whole COVID crisis and people unfortunately are losing their job because the government is forcibly shutting down their business, I would hope that people begin to adopt this mindset of being an entrepreneur and looking for ways to solve the problems that their customers have, Um, using it as an opportunity to maybe create a side hustle that can turn into a full-time job. Imagine a side hustle that's perfectly aligned with the things you love to do. How about transforming a hobby that you love spending your time on into a money-making operation? Uh, The gig economy gives you that opportunity. um, And if you do it right, you can be fabulously successful and, again, have far more control over your life. And really, we talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness I mean, it's completely consistent with that ideal um, of having greater control over your life, more liberty to choose the kind of work you take on, the customers you take on, and ultimately giving you a better chance to pursue your happiness. So, um, yeah. So, Pete, thanks for sharing with me the gig economy. I know you put a video together and posted it on my Facebook page. If you go on Facebook, I have two Facebook pages, the John Riley Project, which is typically where I well, it's where I'm live streaming now. And it's also where I'll post other my episodes, my um, audio only episodes. But I also have the John Riley Project Insiders Group, and all of you are invited to join us there. You got to answer a few questions. I let everyone in, and we typically have you know some more intimate discussions on some of the issues. And uh, Pete dropped a, a video in there that he made and posted on YouTube about the gig economy. Um, and I think he had um, the Pink Floyd song "The Great Gig in the Sky" as part of the music, and it was very well done, Pete. So um, thanks for sharing that and sharing that not just with me, but with the audience here for the John Riley Project. I appreciate that. So, um, yeah, we can continue the conversation in email. Um, you can join our email list. Just go to my website, johnreillyproject.com slash subscribe. Um, and you can also um, uh, really help us out if you could share the po- uh, share these um, videos and audio podcasts. If you can give them thumbs up ratings, you can like them. Um, that helps out um, what we're doing in the algorithms within Google and YouTube. The more likes we get, the more shares we get, the better we do in those algorithms. It gives us greater exposure. Um, and then if you happen to be listening on an audio only podcast, if you can give us you know, a five-star rating if you think we deserve it, um, or any kind of a um, review that is always just so helpful. And um, I really appreciate your support. And, um, you know, those of you that are are my loyal uh, listeners and viewers, thank you very much for your support. Um, I want to close with a quote, as I always do. And Seinfeld is where I'm going to go here. And Seinfeld is like one of my favorite TV shows, uh, my wife and I often joke about it. It's like every day there's like some Seinfeld reference that can be made. Um, every day we can refer back to a certain episode when one of the characters did some whack job thing that happens to relate to us that day in that moment. And we have that opportunity right here. And of course, if we're talking about the U.S. mail, we've got to talk about Newman on uh, on Seinfeld. You know, of course, Newman the neighbor who's always, um, you know, has a kind of a, what's the right word, a jaded relationship with Jerry. They don't like each other. Um, but, and remember this show is in the 1990s. Okay. When it was recorded 
in fact, the show, I think, started maybe in 89. And I think it went as far as, when did it end? Like 97 or 98? So think about it in those terms. The internet didn't really start to become serious until the mid-90s. And it was in the late 90s that we had the big dot-com bubble. Um, so when Seinfeld was being um, you know, written and produced and, and, and broadcast on its regular schedule on NBC, this was really pre-internet. And the quote from uh, Newman was great. And he says, when you control the mail, you control information. <laughs> and it's funny because back then it's true. I mean, because so much information traveled through the mail. Um, so much information traveled, you know, billing statements and finances. And so much of that has moved online. I mean, there's still a great deal of information that exists in the mail, no doubt about it. Um, but it's changed a lot since the era of Seinfeld. So it's kind of funny to, to think about Newman and, and Jerry Seinfeld. And yet, when, the, when you control the mail, you control information. <laughs> well, I think in the 21st century, the, because of the distri distributive aspect of the Internet, because it empowers people like me to have a podcast. It empowers people like you to get to have your fingertip in, uh, access to information anywhere. Really, I think the Internet has been the most explosive, most powerful technology ever yet invented to give people access to information um, far more than the U.S. Postal Service. So um, we'll keep an eye on it, you know, with the election coming here in a few months. Um, and again, we know that two thirds to three quarters of voters here locally vote by mail. So we've got to make sure that the Postal Service is able to deliver the mail on time. That's going to be able to get the ballots to the registrar of voters. I know some people are talking about getting their absentee ballot and then not putting it in the mail, but actually driving to um, a poll location or taking it directly to the registrar of voters just to ensure that it's received Um Let's, we'll keep an eye on that as we get deeper and deeper into this. I know the, the um, absentee ballots usually come out in very early October, and most people have you know, voted by mid-October. You know, so here we are in mid-August. So people are going to be voting in about 45 to, to 60 days. So we're really, really close to this election, and I'm really looking forward to it. We'll be getting deeper and deeper into the election, not only at the national level, but definitely at the local level here in San Diego County, and then definitely here ultra-locally in the North County, uh, San Diego, North County inland areas of Poway, Ranch Bernardo, Rancho Penasquitos, Forest Ranch, Saber Springs, and Del Sur, um, and Carmel Mountain Ranch. How can we forget them? So um, we'll definitely be digging in on that. So thank you very much for joining us here on episode number 150, kind of a milestone. Um, so thanks for joining us. Thanks for watching and listening, and we'll be back at you real soon. Thanks, friends. Bye-bye.